So that was really sweet. I need to start a little negative because <laughs> there's, a, there's a problem. This world that we're in right now, uh, it's, it's really angry. It's really angry. It's, it's so easy in this world to, to offend and we are quick to react with aggression when we are offended. Everybody feels like they're being persecuted, like they're being attacked on all sides. Religion feels attacked and persecuted by culture. Culture feels attacked and persecuted by religion. And there's no topic that's off limits to this. Politics, pandemics. Do the University of Texas and Oklahoma really belong in the SEC? Ben and I were flying home from Honduras last Friday and the news broke about the change and I texted Jennifer right away and I said, I need 48 hours. I need 48 hours to not talk about this so I can readjust and then you can let me have it. So it's all good. But there's a lot that upsets us. Our neighbor, their their trees are dropping too many leaves on our driveway. Whatever it is. The problem is that now we live in a time where we are so easily set off by even the littlest things. And we're being trained to be quick to respond with aggression. We're being trained to let our anger lead the way. And I think we are being trained to do this. The things that we watch and that we read, they encourage it. I mean, it really feels like all media, social, cable news, whatever it is, everything around us is intentionally stoking and fanning those flames that have ignited within us. Did y'all know that we can cut that off? Like, do you know that we don't have to listen to those voices? We don't have to give them our time or our energy. We don't have to pay attention to voices that just make us angrier, either at them or at others. We don't have to listen, we don't have to follow. But we can't cut off our neighbors. And we can't hide from the culture around us. Christ calls us not to be of this world, but to be in it. That we are intentionally placing ourselves in the midst of this chaos that I'm talking about. But we don't have to do it as destructive forest fires, destroying everything that gets in our way. We are called to be light in the darkness, a signal fire, God's redeemed and restored image bearers sharing with the world there just is another way. So there is a problem, and it can feel overwhelming. It's hard to even imagine a way forward. If only there was a place that we could turn to for help in these troubling times, like some source of absolute truth to calm our weary souls. Sorry, I often replace anger with sarcasm. (laughs) Let me read you this. Uh, This, uh, again, to put it back in context in Galatians 5, uh, this passage about the fruit of the Spirit, it starts with this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. It's just a way of saying the way of the world, okay? The way of the world is obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, those are a little weird. This is where it hits home. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy. And then it gets a little weird again, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live according to the ways of the world are simply not living in the kingdom of God. But 
the fruit of the Spirit. Everybody say it with me. Is love, joy, peace. We can say patience, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. So today we're talking about the eighth of nine aspects of the one fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about gentleness. And again today, I have a couple stories for you. Um, story about God, story about a man after God's own heart, and then of course, we always ask, so what? So I want to start with a story uh, that comes from 1 Kings, and it's about this prophet named Elijah. Now, Elijah has this showdown with one of Israel's kings, a guy named Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And they had led Israel to worship false gods, especially a god named Baal. And they had 450 prophets of this false god that they brought to have this showdown with Elijah. And look, the stories it's really violent. The, the prophets of Baal are defeated, they're actually killed. In this story, the real power of the God of Israel is on full display, and the false god of Ahab and Jezebel, it's proven to be just that. It's no god at all. Now, you would think that after such a resounding victory, after such success, this one prophet defeats these 450 prophets and makes the king look like a fool. <clears throat> you would think that after such a resounding victory, the prophet Elijah would be empowered, that he would be ready for whatever challenge faces him next. And at first he was, the story says that Ahab gets in his chariot and rushes back into town, but Elijah, it uses that favorite Hebrew phrase of mine, girds up his loins and he outruns the chariot and makes it to town before them. So he was energized, but listen to what happens next. Ahab tells his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah and says, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. If I don't kill you with the sword in the same way. So Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He left his servant in Beersheba, and he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a bush and sat down under it, and there he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he laid down under the bush and fell asleep. And all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread that had been baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank. And then he laid down again. And then an angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat because the journey ahead is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank. He was strengthened by that food. And that strength allowed him to travel 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, which is known as the mountain of God. And when he got to that mountain, he went into a cave and he spent the night in the cave. But the word of the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. 
And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave to hear the word of the Lord. You see, God chose stillness. He chose to be gentle. It was in that stillness, in that quiet, gentle whisper that God comes to his prophet who's despairing for his life. And in that gentle whisper, he sets his feet back on the path. He gives him his next mission. He restores his faith and his hope, even in the midst of all the chaos and danger that was still around him. So I want you for a second to imagine that you're the most powerful being in the universe. How would you use that power? If you wanted to get Elijah's attention, if you wanted to say, dude, you literally just defeated 450 prophets. Like, things are good. What's your problem? If you wanted to get his attention, if you wanted to get him back on the road, would you just force him to obey and do what you say? That would certainly be easier. If you really wanted to get his attention, wouldn't you shout and yell at the top of your lungs so that he could clearly hear you? You see, this story paints a picture for me of this word gentleness. Because gentleness in scripture is not about the absence of power. Gentleness is not about weakness. It's about great power that is willingly controlled and used for redemptive purpose. Great power that is controlled, guided by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, and self-control. It's controlled power that brings others along and sets things right, rather than a power that aims to control and manipulate others around them. That's the first story. There's another one, and, and in this story, we find that sometimes that gentleness of God, it's actually on display in us. The problem is that that aspect of the character and nature of God, it's so counter to the world around us, it's so nonsensical to the world around us that it can cause us trouble. It can even cause us to lose favor with those who are around us. That's exactly what happened to King David. David is known as a, man's after God, God, a man after God's own heart. And at the end of his reign, as his time as king was coming to an end, we find that it actually wasn't very glorious. He died a broken man. He spent much of his last days hiding in the desert, running from people who were trying to kill him. One of those was his own son named Absalom. So in 2 Samuel 18, we find Absalom, his son, and his men are in hot pursuit. Their goal is to kill King David. And we find that David's men are prepared and ready to defend him. But before they go out in battle, David stops his men and gives him this order. He says, the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. 
And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to the commanders. Now, the story continues. There is a battle, and David's men are victorious. But during that battle, in this kind of odd thing that seems to happen all throughout the Bible, Absalom goes riding out to war, but his hair gets caught in an oak tree. (laughs) And he comes off of his horse, and he's stuck, hanging in a tree, hanging by his hair. He'd been captured. Now remember, Joab was one of the men that David told to his face, be gentle with Absalom for my sake. But listen to what happens next. One of the men in the battle saw what had happened and he told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in a tree. And Joab said to the man who told him this, what, you saw him? Then why didn't you strike him to the ground right then and there? If you would have, I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even a thousand shekels were weighed into my hands. I still wouldn't lay a hand on the king's son. You were there when we all heard him command us, protect. Be gentle with the young man for my sake. In response, Joab goes out to Absalom and he takes not one, not two, but three javelins and he plunges them into Absalom's heart as he hung there by that tree. Then he cuts him down to the ground and lets his men finish the job. (laughs) This is a really sad story, I know. (laughs) The victors in the battle, they return to tell the king about the battle and the first thing that David asks is what? Is Absalom okay? Is he safe? And what was the answer? No, he's not safe. He was killed. The story tells us the king was shaken. He went up to his room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son. So imagine, imagine that you're king. Imagine that by any declaration, you can demand that people obey you and live the way you want them to live. You have the army, the wealth, the power, the authority to strike down anybody who stands against you. When somebody rises up in disobedience, when they declare themselves to be your enemy, what would you do? How would you use your immense power? His own son, Absalom, sought to kill him. But David still had hope. He hoped for redemption and restoration. So he pleaded with his men, be gentle with my son. David didn't rely on his power, but instead he put on the gentleness of God in dealing with a son who had become his enemy. The problem in the story is that because he took on the character of God, he actually lost favor and status among his men. When Joab, the one who killed Absalom, when he heard about David's mourning, he was furious. That kind of behavior was nonsense. They were victorious. They had defended the king. They destroyed his enemies. And he's off weeping and mourning because of it. So the story tells us, Joab says to David, you have humiliated all your men. All your men who just saved your lives and the lives of your sons and daughters. You love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. 
And I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. He was furious because he didn't understand the gentleness of God. See, David did not demand that his army stand down and just be slaughtered. He didn't want Joab and his men to die in Absalom's place. He didn't tell them to passively stand by. All he asked was that they use their great power in a way that made redemption and restoration at least possible. Do this in a way that makes it possible that I can be reunited with my son again. This story reminds me that the gentleness and the mercy of God is nonsense in a world that is so full of anger. And it reminds me that we can't expect to be clothed in gentleness, in the gentleness of God, and also find favor in a world that stands against him. You see, gentleness in scripture is not about the absence of power, it's not about weakness, it's about great power that's willingly controlled and used for redemptive purpose. Great power that's guided by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. So look, those are a couple stories that are filled with a lot of violence, a lot of destruction, but I told them to you because they're stories that give us insight, they give us a peek into the mercy and the gentleness of God. I told you that David's story ends kind of tragically. He does die a broken king. But even then, his story still wasn't over. Because the scriptures look forward to God's promised redemption and restoration of David's kingdom. And in doing so, the prophet Zechariah writes this. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You fast forward a thousand years and we find this in the Gospel of Matthew. The disciples brought a donkey and the colt and they put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is where the promised king, the Messiah from the line of David enters into the story. And he does so entering into a city, a city that will soon turn on him and hang him on a cross. And he comes into that city, not with military pomp, not with the splendor of the kings of this world, not with armies and chariots and tanks. He comes in gentle humility. Because as the storyline of scripture progresses, we find that it's in Jesus that the gentleness and the mercy of God is made complete. That he is, of course, our greatest example of great power that's willingly controlled. And he does it so that there can be redemption and restoration for all, even for those who nailed him to the cross. This is from the Gospel of Luke. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out to be with him, to be executed with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said what? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. As he was dying on that cross, all the people around him stood and they continued to mock him. The rulers sneered at him. They said, he saved others, so let him save himself. 
if he's God's Messiah, if he's really the chosen one. The soldiers that nailed his hands to the cross came up and continued to mock him. They offered him vinegar and wine, and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, then just save yourself. Come on down. One of the criminals next to him who hung there even hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Why don't you save yourself? Oh, and also us, by the way. Could he have saved himself? Could he? Could he have just gotten down off that cross? Could he have demanded and forced obedience from the crowd? Could he have demanded and forced that people bow down at the feet of the Son of God? Of course he could have. But the cross was his choice. Gentleness is not about weakness, y'all. Jesus was not weak when he stood on trial before the people, when he was tried and convicted, when he was beaten and bruised. Imagine the strength it takes when you contain within yourself the power of creation, yet you willingly allow yourself to be punished, to take upon yourself the pain and the punishment that was meant for us. That is not weak. It was not weakness and passivity that raised Christ from the tomb. That was the greatest of all powers put on full display. You see, God's gentleness and mercy is made complete in Christ because he didn't use his great power to destroy his enemies or to force compliance. He used it to redeem them and make a way for them to be with him again. That sons and daughters could be reunited with their father. Gentleness for the Christian is not about weakness or surrender, but it is absolutely about sacrifice. And not sacrifice in the old religious sense of I'll bring my gifts to the altar so that I can appease an angry God. This is the kind of sacrifice that reflects upon and then declares the truth that God bore his own anger on his own shoulders. And he did it so that we might be saved. He did it so that we can be renewed and restored. So that we don't have to fall in line with the ways of the world that leads to chaos and anger and destruction. But that there might be another way. So how do we put on this gentleness? By being imitators of Christ through the power of his spirit. This from, comes from a scholar uh, with a really strange name. His name is Trimper Longman III. And he says, the biblical image of a believer, both individually and as a church, is of a gentle people who follow in their footsteps of their gentle Lord and master. Clearly, this is not a gentleness that is naive or spineless, but a gentleness that lives with principled firmness. Y'all, there's a lot to be angry about these days. And to be totally honest with you, I'm angry. I'm angry. I'm angry at a political culture that is destroying relationships, dividing families because of left versus right. I'm angry at a society that has gotten so caught up in that division that it knowingly allows itself to be manipulated by cable news and social media. That it allows itself to have those destructive flames fanned. I'm angry that we can't even come together to fight against things that are a threat to all of us. How could we not at least agree 
to be against a virus. <laughs> so I'm angry. But that's okay. Because Jesus was angry. There's a story where Jesus comes upon a man who's blind. And do you know what it says? It says, when Jesus saw the man, he was angry. Not at the blind man, but at the blindness that had taken that man from his society. He was angry at the brokenness in this world. The Old Testament presents to us a God who is angry. But this anger is not directed at you. It is directed toward injustice and pain and suffering and dishonesty and manipulation. That is good biblical anger. And y'all, we are not called to simply be passive and submissive. We're not to just stand by as injustice and chaos rules the world. It is good to be biblically angry about the chaos and darkness in this world. The question is, what will we do with it? Will we carry our guns and our flags and our political slogans to fight the battle? Or will we carry the cross of Christ? Will our anger become a destructive force, a terrible forest fire that destroys everything in its path? Or can we sacrifice our passionate desire to lash out and instead let the spirit transform that anger into a signal fire, a sign for others that there is a better way? Can Christ's own gentleness in me take my anger and lead me to acts of redemption and restoration? Can it? Of course it can. That's the wrong question. The question is, will I let it? God's spirit is present and available, powerful enough to transform my anger into hope, to guide me in the way of Christ, the way of sacrifice and redemption and restoration if I will join him in his mission and invite him to guide my steps along the way. This is really important. As, as the first service was leaving, a lot of people stopped at the door. And <laughs> sorry, it's just really, sorry. It's just really cute. So a lot of people stopped and they said, thank you so much for that message. I know so many people who need to hear that. <laughs> I love it when people say that. <laughs> Here's the deal. Like, none of this is about judgment on the people who fall in to just the way of the world. Y'all, that's just the natural way. That's all we know. That's the world we're raised in. We don't know any different until we do, right? It's not about judgment on those who have fallen into the way of the world, it's just about the reality that we have to make a choice. That at some point we gotta make a choice to follow another way. Otherwise we're just a part of the noise. That way won't lead to popularity here on earth, it won't bring us prosperity, it won't make our name great, it'll likely cause us to lose favor in a world that doesn't understand God's mercy. But our greatest witness in times like these just might be the gentleness of Christ a willingly controlled power that says in the face of hate and aggression, hate and aggression we see every day, y'all, there is just a better way. Amen? Let's pray. 
God, we read these strange, uh, weird, violent stories from the Old Testament, and sometimes we wonder what they have to do with us, and then we look around the world and realize that we live in a strange, weird, violent, and destructive place. So God, I'm grateful that you use uh, just real stories to teach your absolute truth, that you do so to help us see how those ancient truths apply even today. So God, help us to become a people who will put on your gentleness when we are encouraged and inspired by the world around us, by the voices around us to join in to that anger and that hate, that we would just say no. No, there's a better way. That we would make the choice to follow Jesus, to be strong, to trust the gospel, to trust your power, to let it work through us so that we would not cause more destruction and chaos, but that we would bring hope, love, joy, peace, patience, and all the rest. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.